You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Please be seated and get your Bibles open to Psalm 41. You know, there's a, there's a colossal difference between understanding a theoretical concept and then applying that concept to your life practically and personally. There, there's, there's often a, an, an enormous uh, chasm between those things. Understanding the theory, but then actually living it out. I mean, you could understand how an airplane works. You could use terms like, like aerodynamics. You could, you could talk about thrust and lift and drag. You can understand the, the physics behind it, the theory, but you've never, you, that doesn't mean that you've flown. Until you buy a ticket and go to the airport and get on board, there's a big difference between just simply understanding the math or the physics behind something and actually doing it. In the same way, you can know some facts about nutrition. You can, you can know uh, about cholesterol or about saturated fats. You can understand those sorts of things, but, but the rubber really hits the road when you choose between, am I going to eat an apple or an entire apple pie tonight? That, that, that's, there's a big difference between simply understanding the theory and actually living it out. Also, it's, it, it's true in the realm of theology. You can, you can know some things about God. You can learn some things in the Bible. You can give the right answers on Sunday morning. But the question is, are you actually living by them on Monday? You see, the amazing thing about the Bible is that it never lets us simply remain in the theoretical. That's why I love the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms is, is, is not just a theory about who God is. In fact, the book of Psalms tests the boundaries of the incredible doctrines of who God is and how this world works. And so in the book of Psalms, we, we find these truths about God that we can understand on an intellectual level, but then it allows us to engage with it on a personal, emotional level. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 41. We're going to actually see a psalmist go through this struggle of knowing something in their head, but not seeing it work out in their own life. And so the psalm today is going to go through three movements. The first one is the theological concept. In the first three verses, he's going to lay out a familiar theological concept, something that the psalmist understood. He was probably taught it by, by his Sunday school teacher, and you probably learned it from your Sunday school teacher. It's, it's something quite familiar. In verse 1, it begins by saying, to the choir master, a psalm of David, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Introducing this, this theological concept, he, he begins with the word blessed. The, the person is happy. The person is living the good life. The happy people, the people who are living fulfilled, good lives, fit into this category. They are the kinds of people who consider the poor. That word 
poor is not simply re- referring to a financial poverty. There's a, there's a, a footnote in your ESV Bible there that, that points you to, to your margin or the bottom of your page that indicates that poor there, it, it's referring to weak. True poverty is not just having less money than everyone else. True poverty is being weak and incapable of having the thing, or of, of having yourself move forward or progress in your life. So it's, it's not just the person who considers the poor, but the person who considers the weak, the helpless, those who are unable to help themselves, who are fina- not just financially destitute, but personally as well. So this is the concept. God looks after those who look after the poor and the weak. That's what the psalmist says right from the, right from the very beginning. And, and he delivers them in verse 1. Verse 2, he protects them. It says that they are called blessed in the land. They have a good reputation. It says that, it says that his, his enemies, will, he won't be given over to the will of his enemies. It's important to note there that he still does have enemies. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that if you uh, become a Christian and begin to follow the ways of God, it doesn't mean that people still aren't going to turn against you. But God protects us protects those who who look after the poor from the schemes of their enemies. Then verse 3, it says that he sustains him on his sickbed and restores him to health. Again, we can't buy into this false teaching that says that if, if you believe in God and place your faith in him, you'll never get sick or you'll always be healthy and wealthy. No, there still is a sickbed. But that God brings the, the sustaining power and the grace into that person's life. So the concept here is not the the familiar maxim in our day-to-day that God helps those who help themselves, but it's God helps those who help the helpless. And and that is is a concept that we see all throughout the Bible. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That people who have a heart for those who are down on their luck or who are struggling or who are weak, those are the people, those, those merciful people are the, are the ones that God has promised to show mercy as well. Now this, this give mercy, receive mercy thing, give mercy to others, receive mercy from God. In, in Psalm 41, it seems like we are the initiators. And, and in other parts of the Bible, it seems like, yes, we give mercy, then God gives mercy to us. But as you look at all of the Bible, it's actually more cyclical that, that, that one propels the other. And Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, he also said in Matthew 18, with that parable, the unforgiving servant, Remember that servant who got a forgiven for this massive debt and then another guy owed him like 50 cents and he started choking him and threw him in prison? The, the, the message of that parable and the message in, uh, in the Lord's prayer of, of forgive us as we forgive others is the idea. It's not just that we're merciful so God will be merciful to us. It goes like this. God has been merciful to us. Therefore, we are merciful. That the people who tend to care for those who are in need and have a heart for those who are helpless are the people who understand that they were helpless themselves and God was merciful to them. Therefore, they can be merciful to those who are poor and needy. And so that's the concept. And if you notice in, verse, in verses 1 to 3, he's speaking on a general principle 
level. He's using the third person singular pronoun. Him, he, there's this, there's this theoretical person out there in the abstract. And if they are nice to the poor, then God will protect them and preserve them. It's all very theoretical. But then in verse 4, he begins with the phrase, as for me. Now the psalm gets personal. This song would have been really hard to put to words, to put to music, Jameson, because it just, it just changes themes so quickly. It starts with this general principle. It seems like shiny happiness. I just got to be merciful. God will be good to me. But then it turns to a minor key. It says, as for me, he's moving from the theoretical to the practical, from the abstract to the concrete, from the general to the personal. And what we're going to find in this next section is that so often God speaks to us and teaches us in a classroom that is actually a crucible. And God's main pedagogy is pain. The way that God so often helps us to live out the the theological concepts that he wants to teach us, the way that he has the rubber hit the road so often involves us falling on the road involves us experiencing pain and anguish. And that's exactly what this psalmist is going to go through. And so he understands the concept. Now look at verse 4. He says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal me, for I've sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me and they imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him and he will not rise again from where he lies. Verse 9, even my close friend whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But you O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Verse 4, he talks about how he sinned, also that he's in need of healing. He's got enemies in verse 5. His own close friends have betrayed him in verse 9. I mean, this is the, this is the crisis of all crises. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's spiritual, it's physical, it's emotional, it's relational, it's personal. I mean, this guy is going through it all and all at once. It's not just one trial, it's just another trial on top of another. He is going through this incredibly difficult crisis here. And so the psalm moves from the theological concept that God is merciful to those who are merciful to the painful crisis. The painful crisis. This person isn't experiencing any mercy at all in their life right now. And their, their enemies are heaping it on them. Their body is physically falling apart. And even their friends have turned on them. It's the painful crisis. And so the psalmist, again, is, is, is making clear, as we see so often in the book of Psalms, is, you know what, my life isn't quite as neat and tidy as verses 1 to 3. I know I, I try to help the poor, but I know, like he says in verse 4, I have sinned. Sins of commission, sins of omission. I know that there were people that I should have helped that I didn't help. And so I know that I don't deserve to fit into that category of verses 1 to 3, but what about me? How do I fit into this? This this concept doesn't seem to jive. It doesn't make sense in my own life. But listen, loved ones, 
It's so often the crisis, the crisis like this, where the concept comes alive. Remember, if you go back to verses 1 to 3, the blessed man who was merciful, he still has a sickbed. He still had enemies. It doesn't mean that that person is somehow exempt from suffering and pain in their life, but that God is with them all throughout it. So out of this painful crisis, we're going to see that the psalmist will come out on the other end knowing that God is with them. He gives two requests. One, that God would be gracious to him in verse 4, and that God would heal him. He asks for God's grace. Grace is, is receiving something that we don't deserve. Notice how the psalmist is not listing off all of the different ways he helped needy and poor people. He's not trying to build a case. He's not filling out an application form trying to present the facts so that God would be merciful to him. No, his only hope is the grace of God. And his only hope is our only hope, the grace of God. Our only hope for answered prayer is the grace of God. Our only hope for entrance into heaven and eternal life is the grace of God. Do not think that when this life is over, you're going to come to God with a list of your good deeds. That will not get you into heaven. You do not deserve to go to heaven. There's only one person who deserves to go to heaven. He's the one who came from heaven, Jesus Christ. And he suffered and died for you to pay the penalty for your sins. Not just for the bad things that you do, but for your faulty reasoning and thinking that your good things are good enough. That's also a sin. And he died for that. The pride that wells up inside of us for our achievements. He died for all of those things. And if you place your faith in him and believe in him, you can make that decision today. You can cry out like the psalmist said, Oh Lord, be gracious to me. No one deserves to go to heaven but Jesus. And unless you're with him, you're not going. And so place your faith in him. He says that I have sinned. And this has been a, uh, a theme as we've gone through um, this group of psalms in, in this particular summer. Psalm uh, 38, 39, 40, and 41 are all really clustered together. If you just look back quickly at 38 verse 4. Look at Psalm 38, verse 4. All of these psalms have this compounding stress of confessing sin and struggling with physical illness. 38, 4 says, my iniquities have gone over my head. Now look at uh, Psalm 39, verse 8. It says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Psalm 40, verse 12. My iniquities have overtaken me. They are more than the hairs on my head. So these four psalms are all sort of linked together. They, they follow the same theme. They were probably all written by David at this moment of crisis when he was in the miry clay and God lifted him up. This is, these are all linked together. Then in verse 5, the enemies are, are saying, when will he die and his name perish? But that's what they're saying behind his back. In verse 6, it says, when one comes to see me, 
He utters empty words. They come with the flowers and the balloons and they, they come with their empty words. You know, we're praying for you and you're in our thoughts and get well soon and all of that sort of thing. And so they're saying all of the right things, but then it says, while his heart gathers iniquity and when he goes out, he tells it abroad. They're really just, they're gathering information. They're really just gossiping about him and they're trying to show like they care to see if they can learn more so that they can spread more rumors and drag the psalmist's name through the mud even more. Verse 7, it says, All who hate me whisper together about me, and they imagine the worst for me. And so they're, they're planning how to make this painful crisis even more painful for this person, tr- seeking to uh, bring them down. Verse 8, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. This, this deadly thing, the, the, the underlying Hebrew there is the word a belial, which is related to, to, to demons, to, to the devil. So this is quite the opposite of being a blessed person like the way the psalm began that they're they're saying he's not blessed this person is under a curse there's there's something evil that is happening to him and it must be because he himself is evil but that's what you would normally expect from your enemies if someone is already against you they're, they're simply going to turn against you even more when when you're down But verse 9 really stings. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This person uh, says that this person ate ate my bread. Hospitality was such such a big deal in the ancient Near East. Who you ate with and, and who was seen as, as being at your table and who you offered food to said so much about your relationship with that person. And this close friend, it says, who ate my bread, and then it says, has lifted his heel against me. Now, if someone is looking towards you, uh, their toes are pointed at you. But if someone chooses to turn their back on you, then their heels are facing you. And if they walk away from you, what happens to those heels? Those heels are lifted. And so what this metaphor is communicating is that this person has walked away from me, has turned, so we would use in English, they turn their back on me. But in Hebrew, the the phrase is, they lifted their heel towards me, which meant that their toes are no longer facing me. Their heel is facing, and they're not not simply turning, but they're walking away. They're distancing themselves from me. It's a phrase to indicate deep betrayal. Now, the closest guest we have as it relates to David's life would have been this character named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's closest advisors. He was actually David's father-in-law. But when David's son Absalom led a rebellion, led a coup, and and tried to overthrow David as king, Ahithophel, his father-in-law, turned against David and backed Absalom. 
The background detail about Ahithophel is, he, you know, David had multiple wives, so the father-in-law thing was complicated. But Ahithophel's daughter was Bathsheba. And so all along, all through the disaster of David's relationship with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, all along Ahithophel is observing all of this. And David thought Ahithophel was growing in loyalty, but he was in fact growing in bitterness, waiting for that moment where he could lift his heel against David. And so he's experiencing this anguish of being betrayed by a close friend, even family, if it was Ahithophel. Then in verse 10, he says the same thing he said in verse 4. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Verse 10, and raise me up that I may repay them. One commentator um, indicated here that this is, this is vindication without being vindictive. David was the king. Uh, these people were committing treason in what they were doing, in, what they, in the way that they were plotting to try to bring David down. And so David had a political response. This wasn't necessarily personal revenge. He had a political responsibility to deal with these people who had turned on him and turned really on the entire nation. So it's out of this anguish, it's out of this painful crisis where we see David come through with a rock-solid resolve. He believes that God is with him more than ever. And that leads us to the third section, moving from the theological concept to the painful crisis and now to the personal conviction. The personal conviction. He says in verse 11, By this I know that you delight in me, my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You see, this concept of God being merciful to those who are merciful is driven home because of the crisis. It becomes a personal conviction because David lived it. He attended the school of hard knocks. He went to the classroom that was a crucible. And he, he lived it out. He experienced it. And it was tested. Am I going to trust that God will indeed be merciful to me? And as I was thinking about this psalm, I, I know there are for sure times in my life where I look back at certain experiences and I, I, I look at them and I say, I did not enjoy that. I would not like to go through that again. I would not like my worst enemy to go through that. But I am somehow thankful for that. Because if it wasn't for that, I would just be someone with a head full of theological concepts. But it was that crisis, it was that pain, it was that anguish, it was that suffering, it was that difficulty that allowed me to move from simply a concept to a conviction. That I could say like David says here, that you delight in me. You're not punishing me, God. You're purifying me. You, you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in 
triumph, the, the, the understanding that no matter what happens, we have victory in Christ. Verse 12 uses this word integrity. It says, you have upheld me because of my integrity. Now, this isn't talking about perfect integrity. This isn't talking about living sinless perfection because the guy said in verse 4 that I've sinned. Have mercy on me because I've, I've sinned. But he's trying to deal with his sin. He's trying to deal with the crisis in a way that has integrity. And then it says, you have set me in your presence forever. He might have experienced the heel of his close friend lifting and walking away. But he knows that God will never lift his heel against him. He knows that God will never walk away from him, that God has set him in his presence forever. So David's psalm is an example of taking a concept and how God so often uses a crisis to take that concept and make it into a conviction. So what are we to do with a psalm like this? It ends with this great statement of praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. I mean, we're the ones reading it. We're not the ones writing it. We, we may not have the same kind of crisis in our lives. So how do we keep this word right now from becoming a mere concept? How do we keep the idea from concept to crisis to conviction. That seems to make sense. Store that away in our mind. How do we allow this psalm to really breathe into our lives? How, how do we apply this in our lives even if we're not going through a crisis right now? Well, the best example in making God's word come alive in our lives comes from a surprising source. The person who we can look to most clearly as far as living out, studying, and applying the Word of God, in fact, is nicknamed the Word of God. It's Jesus. Jesus was continually using Scripture to make sense of his circumstances. He applied Psalm 41 personally to his life. And so if you are found in Christ today, you can apply Psalm 41 personally to your life. In John 13, right after Jesus washed all of his disciples' feet, including Judas' feet, this is what Jesus said. He said, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You see, Jesus didn't go through the exact same circumstance as David. I mean, this, is, this, is, this psalm is re referring to physical illness. We don't have a, a, a record of Jesus being physically ill. But Jesus was taking the, the principles of Psalm 41, seeing what happened to David as being a type or a, a picture pointing towards what would happen to Jesus. Jesus here is referring to Judas. Ahithophel, after Absalom's rebellion failed, hanged himself. Judas, after Jesus was crucified, hanged himself. David was betrayed by a close friend. Jesus, the son of David, 
was betrayed by a close friend. Who is this mystery man in in verse 1? Who is this person, this, this general abstract idea of this blessed person who considers the poor, who is thoughtful and reaches out to people who are needy and in need of mercy? Who is that? Well, the greatest fulfillment of that principle is Jesus. He considered us. Blessed is the man who considers the poor. Blessed is the man who considers the weak. Blessed is the man who considered Ted Duncan. Blessed is the man who considered all of us, who in our weakness and in our poverty and our inability to save or rescue ourselves, went through his own crisis, the crisis of the cross, in order to save us. So that he was able to say, Truly, what verse 11 says, you delight in me and my enemy will not shout in triumph. When Christ died on the cross, I mean, surely the demons and Satan and the whole underworld were rejoicing, thinking that they had won. There was a shout of triumph. But then Christ rose again, so his enemies did not shout in triumph. And Jesus is the one who's now in God's presence forever. In verse 12, and if you're found in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, then you will be in God's presence forever as well. And so this morning we're going to remember the crisis, the painful crisis that Christ went through. We're going to remember his suffering, his betrayal. We're going to remember what he went through on our behalf. We're going to take in our hands bread Just like he passed bread to his close friends. Just as he passed bread to Judas who betrayed him. We're going to pass a cup which is a a symbol of his blood giving his life. And my challenge to you this morning is as we take the bread and the cup. Don't allow the gospel to be a mere theological concept. Use this moment of reflection and remembrance to ensure that in your heart of hearts, it's not just a theological concept, it's a personal conviction. That this is is what you live by. This is the source of your hope and your joy, your meaning and your Purpose. Let this simply be what you cling to. So let's bow our heads together and pray as we prepare to share together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you love us. God, we thank you that you are indeed a God who answers the prayer of chapter 41, verse 4, that says, O Lord, be gracious to me. Thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that you are the one who considers the poor. And that you considered us in our own poverty, in our own sinfulness. And you chose to have mercy on us. God, I pray that you would be with us as we take these symbols in our hands. I pray, Lord God, that we would be so reminded of the power and the beauty of the gospel, Lord. Convict us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. If there's unconfessed sin in our life, draw us closer to you as we seek, Lord, to experience communion 
with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.